to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, hello. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Andre, lead pastor here at the city. As always, uh, real good to have you join us for our online gathering. If you're new to our church, we'd love to extend a warm welcome to you. And so do drop us a note uh, either on Facebook message or just uh, shoot us a comment on the comment section. I know there are a bunch of people who are looking forward to uh, welcome you and meeting you in person. Now, uh, so fun that uh, Gush is uh, going on a new series. Uh, they've just finished one on the Inside Out. Uh, the Inside Out. Why do I sound so data? Inside Out movie. Uh, it's a Pixar movie. And they're doing one on Toy Story. Now, in my life, uh, Andre isn't uh, really an emotional person, but I've cried two movies in total. Uh, the first movie is uh, I'm Not Stupid, so I pooped. You know, I cried. Uh, and then uh, the next movie is uh, Toy Story 3. I cried. <laughs> <laughs> at Toy Story 3. Now, uh, so looking forward uh, for the kids to uh, experience that. Now, uh, you know, we are uh, in the middle of, um, you know, working out some plans for 2022 as a staff team. And uh, one of the things I've been doing this week is just looking through old pictures and old videos of uh, our church, you know, over the last couple of years. And man, I must say I've forgotten what... Uh, church pre-pandemic uh, looks like. Uh, it's, it's really, really a surreal thing. You know? And so seeing this whole uh, hall packed full of people uh, who are super duper close. Man, we used to sit really, really close to each other. I wonder how that feels like. I probably will feel really claustrophobic when things are coming normal. And, uh, and all this to say, it just stirred up a lot of feelings of like, you know, just missing uh, our church, our entire church, all of you all uh, being here together. And so uh, all this to say, I miss you and I wonder whether you miss me too. Uh, it's okay. Don't, you don't have to comment because my heart would very likely be broken. This very unrequited love kind of thing. But hey, you know, I, I miss you and I wonder if you miss me too. Have I told you lately that I love you? Anyway, it's an old song. It's an old song. <laughs> uh, well, we are beginning our, our brand new sermon series called our missional life and uh, if you're familiar with our church and the rhythms we go through uh, we uh, really sent our teachings around one of three uh, goals uh, that's reflected on our passion statement the first is be with Jesus and the next become like Jesus and towards the end of the year we oscillate into doing the works of Jesus because the church is not just a community that gathers uh, weekly you know, to worship to be one another to enjoy each other's company and to hear some good teachings no the church is called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our world. Our world so needs Jesus, his presence, his power, his glory, his grace, his mercy. And Jesus has ordained not just the ends. He has ordained the, the means to which his presence, his power is displayed on the earth and he does so through the church. We all know the end. The end is God glorified, but he has ordained the means as well. And that is through his holy church, the people of God. And so this is the mission of life. This is what we are diving into over the next few weeks. And then, boom, folks, we are at Christmas. My gosh. And so then 2020, what, what year is next year? 2022. You see, I forgot the years already. Okay, 2022, which will be another... Awesome year. All right, so let us uh, begin this series. I'd love to begin with uh, a quote and just to give us a bit of framework and understanding to what we are going after for this series. Uh, I'd love to read this quote from a missiologist named Daryl Gouda. He says this, Mission is not just a program of church. It defines the church as God's sent people. Either we are defined by mission or reduce the scope of the gospel and the mandate of the church. Thus, our challenge today is to move from church with mission to missional church. A bit of a play on words there. And so our goal for this series is to explore this question, right? How can we move from a church with mission? We talk about our mission statements, programs, initiatives, campaigns. How can we move from a church with mission as perhaps an emphasis or an aspect to a missional church, a church possessed and defined by divine purpose? Well, I think that the word mission has lost some of its luster and appeal in the 21st century. For some, it remains the job of super Christians. We think of your Heidi Bakers, your Mother Teresa's. These are the super-duper Christians, right? These are the high-level ones, and these are the guys who are called to do mission. I am just regular run-of-the-mill, plain old Joe, 
Sorry if Joe is your name, but it remains the job of super Christians, right? Or we water it down entirely. We say, hey, you know, I do my job. I'm a good employee. I'm a good parent. I parent my kids well. I'm a missionary in my own context. And we completely water down this concept of being a missionary. Or we are on the fence with this word and this concept because we perceive it to be on a spectrum that, that sits on you know, kind of oppression, right? on a spectrum of oppression. Right? We think of coercion and colonialism and we are very apprehensive when we come to think about this concept of mission. And so often we shrink back and we don't seem as a people to have a robust, positive imagination of mission, even though we know it's an intrinsic an essential part of our faith and a mandate of following Jesus, we just shrink back and hold ourselves back from imagining what God wants to do through us, through mission. And a realization I've come to uh, as I reflect on the church is this, that we have developed a lot of theology, a lot of tools, a lot of frameworks for private discipleship, right? We think of like discipleship tools, we think of personal devotions, we think of teachings on prayer. We have developed a whole lot as a church uh, that's skewed towards that, that's geared towards private discipleship, but very little towards missional practices. Very little towards the everyday individual who probably won't read books on missiology. Very little directed in that way to uh, uh, chart a person on a course of being a missional person. And missions is not just a peripheral side thing, as Christine rightly pointed out. It's not just some small aspect. It is the call. It is the commission for the people of God. Go, make disciples, be missional. And so what we're going to explore over these few weeks is, first off, to offer a theological understanding of missions. And uh, we're also going to explore some practices of a missional community. And we're also going to look into how we can integrate them into the way we live. And so there are three components to the next few talks. It's going to feel very eclectic. Like one day we talk about practices, the other way we talk about calling, vocation, and some day we're just like... You know, Janice exposes this like robust theology. And so it's a few eclectic, but it's all unto the same goal. And so theology, practices, integration, if you can't remember, the acronym is TPI, you know, like the building we are in, TPI. Theology, practices, and integration. Well done, Andre. Daniel will love this, right? Pastor Daniel loves all these like, little things. And so this is for you. And so theology, practice, integration, because a Christian life is that, right? You know, we study God. We seek to understand his kingdom. And we then glean from his holy words into what implications does it have on my life. And then we seek to integrate them into a kind of lifestyle. So T-P-I, folks. Okay, so I'm still in my introduction. Please do not be disheartened. I know at this point that some of you, as I'm talking about this missional life, as you're hearing about this series, you're like, ah, finally we are doing the stuff, right? Oh my gosh, I can't, I can't even with like, you know, all these like regathering stuff, you know, like, come on, let's just do something, you know, and you're like, this is my jam. I waited all year for a missional talk. And then some of you might be on the other side of the fence to which you're like, oh my gosh, I'm really so tired. I'm so fatigued. This year has been so exhausting already. And now you're asking me to go and do something. I'm exhausted. Now, I chanced upon this quote recently. I wonder whether sometimes, you know, if you have ever read something and it just punches you in the gut. And when I read this quote, it had the same kind of effect on me. And this is a quote by Ruth Haley Barton, and she says this, Approaches to formation, another word we can throw in there is discipleship or transformation, that focus only on those places where we are fairly well along can actually become a defense mechanism for avoiding awareness of those areas that are not yet formed in the image of Christ. Now consider these words. What a quote. It is to say that the good parts of our discipleship, the parts we favor or the parts of following Jesus that we are doing well, can in some way function as defense mechanisms, as obstacles to stop the growth of the rest of our discipleship. And so it is to say that our discipleship really takes place, really flourishes in the areas to which we are the most undiscipled. True discipleship often begins in the places that we refuse to talk about. And we see this in the life of Jesus in the gospel. He confronts the you know, touchy topics, the topics that people would glance over, self-righteous living, money, 
sex, Jesus confronts it head on. Discipleship happens in the areas that we are often uncomfortable talking about. Now, I love Strengths Finder. You know, I love you know, the work of Strengths Coach and how they bring a lot of health to people and organizations. And, you know, there's almost this cultural emphasis these days of like, you focus on your strengths and then you minimize your weaknesses. Focus on your strengths, focus on what you're good at and minimize your weakness. Well, you know, I think that kind of framework and, and thought has infiltrated into the way we do discipleship. Focus on your strengths. Minimize your weakness. But I'd like to put it to you this, that the message of Jesus is not maximize your strengths and minimize your weakness. It is it's, it's, it's especially so. Where you are weak, God wants to meet you in your weakness. Where you are weak, God is made strong. Your areas of weakness, your, these unformed areas of your life can be the locus point, the meeting point, the intersection point of God's grace in your life. And so, our missional life. I like to put it to you that if this is something that you struggle to hear, struggle to integrate, struggle to, to embrace, to grasp, this could be the meeting point. This could be the place where God meets with you in grace, in power, in truth. So week one of our mission life. Today I'll be speaking to you on the subject of a holy ambition. A holy ambition. What is an holy ambition? Why is it crucial to capture a holy ambition? Can the Christian life look so much more than just worldly ambition, chasing after worldly things? What is holy ambition? As always, I'd love to read to you the teaching text this morning as we begin. Reading from Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I love to read another passage of scripture that is not found on the slides from Romans chapter 10. It says this in God's word. How beautiful are the feet, those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings, good things. How beautiful are the feet, those who preach the gospel. Let us pray as we begin. Lord, we come to you today as your people, inclining to hear your words, O oh God, inclining to hear what you wish to say to us. And Lord, we want to be a people that fully obeys you, all that you've called us to do. Lord, we don't want to be a people that just cherry picks, that picks and chooses, God, from your commandments and your words. And Lord, we ask, God, that you give us the grace to fully obey you, O oh God. Lord, help us to not just focus on the areas to which we are good at, but Lord, confront us on the areas of discipleship where we have perhaps glanced past or unwilling to confront. Spirit, we pray that you speak to us this day. Invade our homes now with your Holy Spirit. Touch us with your presence as we hear from your words, O oh God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, I remember an exercise that we had to do in primary school uh, as a you know, first day orientation kind of thing, getting to know one another. And the exercise was simple. It was just to attach an adjective uh, to your name, and the adjective had to start with the same letter as your name. And so we had people in my class who were like, Fun Felicia or like, Curious Cassandra. Now, I was Ambitious Andre. Ambitious Andre, man. Ambitious Andre. And I was like, Yeah. Yeah, you know, 
<laughs> now, if you know me as a young boy, you would say Andre is an ambitious boy, ambitious young boy. Uh, I remember, you know, I scored really well for my prelims uh, in, in primary six, and I got invitations to all these schools to visit their open house, you know, and all this ambition. And so, in my list of schools, I had like all the top schools there. And of course, I didn't really do well for my PSLE. That's a whole other story. Uh, and but that did not kill my ambition. I was still ambitious of so many things. I was ambitious in the boys' brigade, the CCL was part of, because I really wanted to yell at people, and so I climbed the ranks, uh, and then I got to yell at some people. Uh, Andre wasn't a Christian then. Uh, you know, I was ambitious in church. You know, I really wanted to uh, serve more, you know, to be entrusted with more. I was ambitious in church. And I remember, you know, in my uh, early 20s, I was ambitious about life. You know, I had so much dreams, so, so many desires. You know, I wanted to, uh, you know, have a certain career path. I wanted to make a certain amount of money. I wanted to have a certain um, uh, kind of lifestyle. I was ambitious. I had ambition. But at some point in my discipleship, I had someone who was well-meaning come to me and said this, Andre, do not be consumed by worldly ambition. Do not be consumed by worldly ambition. It was the first time I heard someone frame ambition in that manner. I always thought that ambition was a good thing, right? It, it like drived me. It propelled me to doing more and giving more and being more excellent. And all of a sudden, someone came up to me and said, Andre, do not be consumed by worldly ambition. And all of a sudden, you know, I was launched into this new way of thinking, new frame of thinking that I've never ever entertained, right? Ambition. Worldly ambition. Ambition is now worldly. Is this something to be, you know, taken out or gotten rid of? And so some of you who may be immature, like I was then, will conclude that all manner of drivenness, thirst for advancement and promotion should be clamped out. Christians should live content and unfazed at opportunities of advancement. But is this really what we ought to think about ambition? Something to be primarily driven out? Or could it be something that you drive towards God, His purposes, His kingdom? In the world, ambition is praised, whereas in the church, ambition is sometimes considered a vice, a temptation. But is ambition the problem, or is it what we are ambitious for that is the issue we ought to grapple with? Ambition, we know, is one of the dominant values and forces in the world we live in. However, as we explore, ambition it's a complex thing to grasp if you're a follower of Jesus. Is it godly? Is it ungodly? Is it good? Is it bad? How much is too much? How much is too little? How are we to think about ambition? That's a question that we are looking to explore this morning. Now, it's interesting that in the NIV, the Bible uses the word ambition seven times. Five of those uses are negative, right? talks about selfish ambition, and only two are positive. Paul told the Romans, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. He also says in Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That just sounds downright appealing to me. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Quiet. Man, I love that. And other translations, I tend to substitute the word aspiration for uh, ambition. And so even here we see in the Bible that ambition can be framed as a positive thing or a negative thing, right? What are we to think of ambition? The Christian philosopher and author James K. Smith once noted that ambition is a many-splendored and much maligned thing. He says this about ambition. If you keep walking around the phenomenon of ambition, you'll start to note a couple of features. First, the opposite of ambition is not humility. It is sloth, passivity, timidity, and complacency. We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining that ambitions are prideful and arrogant so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into deep get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. <laughs> but this imagining is often just a thin cover for a lack of courage, even laziness. Playing it safe isn't humble. He goes on further in this book that he writes uh, to make a case for a sanctified imagination. To have courage, to not be lazy, to not settle for the comfortable, to not play it safe, 
Ambition then is not something just to be dismissed or done away with. There can be such a thing as godly, holy, sanctified imagination. And that's our ambition, and that is what we will explore further. Before I go on further, I'd like to first make a point to acknowledge that ungodly, secular, worldly ambition can be a very damaging thing. C.S. Lewis has this to comment about ambition. He says this, Ambition, it isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can be possibly acted. But a wish to have his name in bigger type than the other actors is a bad one. What we call ambition usually means the wish to be more conspicuous or more successful than someone else. It is the competitive element in it that is bad. It is perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or to look nice, but when the dominant wish is to dance better or look nicer than the others, when you begin to feel that if the others dance as well as you or looked as nice as you, that you will take all the fun out of it, then you are wrong. And here we see two facets of what we deem as worldly ambition, and that is domination and recognition. Domination, this need to dominate all others to be the very best, And not just that, to be recognized for doing so. To beat everyone and for everyone to say and recognize that, yes, you are the best. Worldly ambition. Dominating others and recognition for doing it well. That's the heart of worldly ambition. It's ultimately a self-defined, self-fulfilling, self-benefiting desire that comes at the expense of others. And that's why James says this in James 3, who is wise and understanding among you, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Catch this, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, There you find disorder and every evil practice. Isn't that such a sobering word? Where there is selfish ambition, ambition that seeks to gratify only oneself. It opens the doorway to evil. There there is disorder. That word disorder can also be translated to being exposed. Where we give our hearts into selfish ambition, the enemy has a highway, a pathway to rule and reign in our hearts, in our lives, to govern our desires. Selfish ambition. There's a warning surrounding this thing of ambition. Do not let domination and recognition lead to selfishness in your heart because it is demonic and will lead to destruction. Gordon MacDonald, uh, who wrote this book, Ordering Your Private World. This is a book I highly highly recommend. Uh, he lists down these characteristics of what he calls driven people. And his definition of driven people would probably be closer to people who are consumed by worldly, selfish ambition. And he writes this, driven people are most often gratified only by accomplishment. They are preoccupied with only the symbols of accomplishment. They're usually caught in the uncontrolled pursuit of expansion. They tend to have a limited regard for integrity. They're not likely to bother themselves with the honing of people's skills. They're highly competitive, often possessing a volcanic force of anger. They're usually abnormally busy, adverse to play, and avoid spiritual worship. Worldly ambition. We see examples of this kind of ambition in the Bible. We think of David who numbers his troops as a way of uh, gratifying himself in Uh, in in face of his military might and power, and God brought about such a harsh and needed correction. And there's also this scene in the Last Supper. The context is this. Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he starts to serve them the Last Supper. He starts to serve his disciples, and he talks about his death, his crucifixion, and what he would do for them. And it's in this context that an argument emerges among the disciples, they started to dispute about who was to be the greatest among them. Who was to be considered the greatest? Who among us, Jesus? Who among us, Jesus, at this point in history, is to be the first among equals? Who are you going to recognize in this moment? Ambition. But what stands out to me in that story is this. That even in the face of what 
I would regard as an embarrassing moment for the disciples. Jesus did not once dismiss their ambition. Jesus did not go, do not have any ambition, do not have any desires, just be content and unfazed. Instead, all through the Gospels, we see whenever ambition surfaces, Jesus redirects it to its appropriate end. He does not quell it. He does not dismiss it. He does not discount it. He redirects this ambition, this, this, this deep, almost innate and intrinsic desire towards its appropriate end. It is not to, the goal isn't to quell ambition, but to direct it to that which is pure, beautiful, right, and noble. And I'd like to offer a definition of holy ambition. Holy ambition is about being caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. It's about shifting your desires from your own personal agenda to that of the kingdom of God. It's about caring about the things God cares about and acting on the things he has called you to do. And so, it has taken me a long while to get to this point. But folks, here is the point of what I've been saying for the last 10 to 15 minutes. And that is this. The most important questions to us, not just pertaining to mission, but to our discipleship to Jesus, is this, how does my worldly ambition get converted into holy ambition? How does my deep desire for more, for greatness, for promotion and advancement, how does this thing get converted into holy ambition? Ambition, that is the seminal question of discipleship. How do I reorient my desires towards that which is pure, good, noble, right, and true? Now, if you go through the Bible, I think there is no better person to look at, to study on this concept of holy ambition than the, than the character of Nehemiah, the person Nehemiah. Now, the book of Nehemiah, if you were to read it, you would notice that there's no miracles in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah wasn't a priest. He didn't belong to um, the religious elite. He didn't fall into a certain kind of uh, uh, hierarchy over others. No, Nehemiah, in some sense, was just a normal man who was a kind of government employee uh, who had certain privileges, powers, and access and who was just doing his job. And he was a person, we read in scripture, who's possessed by a holy ambition and God will use him for his purposes. Now, I want to go through um, this pathway of Nehemiah. How did Nehemiah come from a place where he was just a run-of-the-mill government employee doing his job to a person who was consumed with holy ambition who ended up doing much for the kingdom of God? The first thing that happened in Nehemiah, uh, we read in scripture, is this, that Nehemiah had a kingdom vision. Nehemiah had a kingdom vision. He was captured. He was uh, grasped. He was caught up in a vision beyond himself. The Bible notes that Nehemiah, uh, in you know, uh, his occupation, in all that he had, still had a heart for God's people. He inquired of the state of Jerusalem. It says this in the Bible, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, I hope you can imagine this scene. Nehemiah was living in the king's palace, surrounded by servants and satisfied with fine food, benefits, and security. Then came this terrible report of Jerusalem, and he, he, he was you know, shaken. His life was do- going so great, but God's agenda in Jerusalem was stalled. Now, his response, as he hears, hears about this, was to, we read in scripture, was to weep, was to mourn, was to be broken for the things of God. This is a man who had privilege, position, safety, security, who asks questions because he cares about something more than just his personal well-being. He cares more than just about what happens to him. He cares about what God cares about. Jeremiah 15.5 says this, Who will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will mourn for you? Who will stop to ask how you are? And Nehemiah did just that. He stopped and he asked the questions. How is the people of God? How is the purpose of God being advanced in this moment? God is looking for people to share the burdens and concerns of his heart, who will ask him the question, what is the need of the hour? What concerns you, O God? Who or what is around me, God, that I can respond to? 
Now the problem here is this. There is such a tendency in our world to only care about ourselves, to only be concerned about our own well-being. It can almost be described as a pragmatic selfishness. Our current cultural moment is such, we literally have pages online devoted to ourselves. We have virtual shrines for ourselves in some sense. Pages that revolve around what we do, what we have to say, what we think, what we like. Ours is a culture that is built on this kind of narcissism and selfishness. Me, 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 me. Francis Schaeffer, who wrote uh, this paper, The Great Evangelical Disaster, once said that when the church's primary concern is personal peace and affluence, the church is fundamentally dead in the world. The Bible, Matthew 24, describes the spiritual climate of the last days. People would be lovers of themselves. When we think of the last days, we think of doom, gloom, no bloom. You know, we think of... We think of disaster, we think of wars, we think of people suffering, but rarely do we consider that the Bible says that the end of the age, the last days, can be characterized by an apocalyptic selfishness. People will be lovers of themselves, absolutely selfish. They will only be concerned with oneself. And so this kingdom vision that we talk about is subversive to the spirit of the age. Is what makes us distinctive as a people. Kingdom vision is to have vision beyond the boundaries of our own concern. Because most of us have vision for our lives, for our family, for our friends. But kingdom vision lifts its eyes beyond the horizons and boundaries of one's own concern unto the needs and cause of God. It's interesting that for a period of church history, sin was talked about and referred to as incurvators. Incurvators. It's a Latin word and it was first used by Augustine and then used by Luther in the Protestant Reformation. And it's a word that describes a life lived inward for oneself rather than outward for God and others. It's a love turned inward. It's love collapsing on oneself. Now this doesn't sound bad or insidious in any way. We talk a whole lot about self-love in our culture today. Much of it has been normalized. In many ways, it is promoted and celebrated as a kind of rightful indulgence. But, you know, if we were to do an honest assessment of the things said in our world and our culture today, I should be able to do what I feel I want to do. Nothing should stop me from doing what I want. Anything that stops me from doing what I want is oppression. Unless I do what I want, I can never be truly happy. This is, to put it plainly, an idolatry of self an idolatry of self. Luther will go on further to describe this thing of incurvators. Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. In essence, what Luther is saying is this, that this kind of self-love can turn even the noblest of pursuits into something of selfish ambition and personal gain. If you were to think about it, there are times where we, quote, love people, we do things for people with a personal agenda. It could be to look good in front of others, to appease annoying sense of guilt within, or to get ahead or to ease one's conscience. Even though the outward action may appear sacrificial, loving, it is fueled by an obsession with oneself. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. A great litmus test to understand where we are in relation to this thing of worldly ambition, selfish ambition, or holy ambition, is to look at our prayer lives. What are the things that we pray about? What consumes our prayer lives? If we look at the content of our prayers, would it reflect worldly, selfish ambition or holy ambition? We all know the Lord's Prayer. It goes like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It starts off that way with a vision for God's kingdom, his purposes, his name, his glory. And then it goes into personal needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. Do our prayer lives reflect this order of priority? God's kingdom, 
seeking first his kingdom, his glory, his power, his name, his purposes, and then my needs. Or do we pray a kind of reverse Lord's Prayer? Deliver us from evil, God. Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us my debts. Forgive us our debts and give me my daily bread. Oh yes, and your will be done. Your kingdom on earth, uh, our Father. Amen. How does our prayer life look? A kingdom vision looks to God as the starting point. As we see in Nehemiah, God is looking for those who care about what he cares about. God is looking for people like that. Now, the next thing that Nehemiah experienced uh, could be referred to as a kind of crystallization of discontent. Crystallization of discontent. Now, this may be an unfamiliar term. This is actually a psychological term. It's a moment that psychologists refer to as the moment when a person says, enough is enough. It can refer to a person who is in an abusive relationship who one day just goes, enough is enough, I'm going to get out of this. It can refer to someone who is trapped in a lifestyle addiction and one day sober ups to say, enough is enough, this is not what I want for my life. A crystallization of discontent. Now, all of us, admittably so, have some measure of discontent in our lives. Don't we all? Right? In many categories, right? You know, we in fitness, in family, in finance, we have some measure of discontent. Or we wish that this could be better, or we wish that this could be done different. But the crystallization of discontent is not just a thought or feeling. It's the moment when something has got to change. It is a resolve that things must and will change. It's an awareness that things not being right solidifies into a tangible response. In Nehemiah's day, people were probably familiar with all that was happening in the world. And like much that happens in our world today, we'll have the typical responses. Ah, that's so sad. Mm, You know, uh, that is just terrible. What can I do? What can be done? Someone else will do it. But Nehemiah moved beyond just pity and empathy. He grew discontent, and it led to a tangible response. It says this in Nehemiah 1.4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Holy ambition is birthed out of this place. A crystallization of discontent where you go, it is not okay, something needs to be done. To cultivate holy ambition, we must sit with this discontent. Allow it to crystallize and form, to shape and morph our hearts. Steer it towards a holy ambition. But what often happens is this, that we, in some sense, numb, dismiss or distract ourselves from our discontent. We witness something in the news and we go, that is horrible, that is terrible. Let me just put on a movie because that is just like bad vibes and I can't go to sleep. (laughs) Or we numb it. Or we dismiss it to say that I am only one person, I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to move past. Or, you know, I want to say this even in, with, with gentleness and with pastoral art, heart, we can distract ourselves with small, inconsequential, and, and, and honestly flippant prayers. You know, we, we see a thing and we go, oh my gosh, that's so sad. I feel so much here. Jesus, help these people. Amen. Move past. Nothing happens, nothing changes. And then it's like, I prayed, I've done my thing, let me move on. But the people of God who seek to be consumed by a holy ambition allows for their discontent to morph into tangible action, allows for their discontent to lead them towards sacrificial mission. Now, this week has been just a harrowing week for my family. This is a case in point. This has just been just bad vibes, and bad juju all around. Uh, uh, our little girl uh, uh, contracted HFMD from a school, and now, you know, I always thought that HFMD was just like, oh, yeah, HFMD, you know, you just have some sports, but oh my gosh, HFMD, good gosh, that is 
That's a terrible, insidious, vicious disease from the pit of hell. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it was just horrible. It was just so bad and so heartbreaking to watch her in pain. You know, she had ulcers in her mouth. She couldn't drink her milk. And, and we were heartbroken as parents. And I remember the first night, it was just bad. She was just crying and crying. She was hungry. She was in pain. And we couldn't do anything. We couldn't do much, you know. And we, in a moment of desperation, you know, held her and started to pray. And we were like, God, take away the pain. Bring healing to her. Restore her, God. We speak against the disease. Command it to go to Jesus. In Jesus' name, we, we ask that she'll be able to drink and thus be well. It was a moment of desperation. and We were, we were, we were heartbroken. We were desperate. And in, in, in that instance, you know, uh, nothing really happened. She was still very much in pain. And I was, I was praying for her and I was thinking to myself, this is not okay, God. You promised that we would have power. You have vested power in us, your church. You said, heal the sick. Something should be happening in this moment. And I grew discontent. You know, I, I, I was like, I need to lay hold of this. I need to contend for power in my life to see this thing bow to the name of Jesus. And some hours later, you know, she started to get better. So I get better, she could nurse, and, and we were very thankful that, that we, we began to see some improvements. But as she got better, I noticed this. So did my passion and discontent wane off. You know, so did that, that, that discontent, that thing I felt that went, I need to contend for power and breakthrough. That thing just dissipated. And I, I, I honestly couldn't be bothered. I just distracted myself from that on. Now, we will all come to moments like this of holy discontent, whether in the face of injustice, a lack of breakthrough, or when you're facing a dire circumstance. And we have got to hold on to it. We have got to hold on to it. We have got to sit in it and allow it to do something in our hearts. We have to sit in a discontent, petition God and ask for His Spirit to morph our hearts, to long for the right things. The crystallization of discontent doesn't mean that everything changes in a moment, but it does mean everything changes in your heart about every future moment. Such was the case for Nehemiah. The last thing that happened to Nehemiah was this. He was moved into sacrificial action. It starts off with him having a kingdom vision, and then he experiences the crystallization of discontent, and now he is moved into tangible Radical, sacrificial action. We see in Nehemiah first of praying, radical prayers of personal identification and repentance. He says this, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Even though Nehemiah did not cause the current state of affairs, he took responsibility for what was broken the sins of a previous generation. Hear me in saying this, we can only change what we choose to take responsibility for. What we choose to take ownership for. And then we see further down that Nehemiah begins to pray prayers of faith. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah prayed not only God-centered and God-wrenchingly honest prayers, but also promise-centered prayers. Read on further in verse 10. God, you made a promise about sending us to the ends of the earth if we turned away from you. But you also promised that if we turn from our sin, you would return us to your holy land and restore us. We read down further. It's just Nehemiah reminding God of his goodness, his nature, his character, his promises. Now this... I like to put it to you, is the birthplace of true biblical mission. True mission finds its origins in the heart of God, in what is said, in his promises. True mission does not find its origin just because it's the talk of the town, it's the hot issue. It doesn't find its origin because we feel guilty and we want to ease our conscience. It's not because of our good ideas to improve things. True mission originates from God. God is the originator of mission. We simply step into his story. And after 
this press, we see Nehemiah beginning to take bold action. First, he asked for himself. He asked to be sent back to the city to rebuild it. Then he asked for letters from the king. This is a pagan king to ensure a safe passage. And then further down, he asked for the king to fund the entire project. All of which could have gotten him killed, by the way. These were all bold requests. Nehemiah, in this instance, uses his privilege, status, access, and power for the purposes of God. And we know that at the end of the story, Nehemiah accomplished this project, fulfilled. Uh, 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 he, he accomplished what he set out to do, to restore these ruins in 52 days. And get this, these ruins had laid barren, broken, and overlooked for some 140 years. And what laid as a wasteland for 140 years, Nehemiah restored in 52 days. When a man catches a kingdom vision, allows for discontent to be crystallized in his heart, and then is moved into sacrificial action, there can be an acceleration of God's purposes for the world. And so the question is this, what do you have access to? How are you privileged over others? What do you have in terms of resource, connection, opportunities that you can route towards the kingdom of God? Now, I'll make a point to say this, that privilege is one of the most controversial words in our world today. It can trigger both outrage and scorn. Some of you, even with this, when I say privilege, you're just triggered with all sorts of emotions. Now, one of the typical responses I observe whenever I talk about privilege is an almost reactive defensiveness. People often say, I'm not as privileged as so-and-so. That person has more. I'm just regular, average. Others have it better than I do. It's not uncommon to hear statements like, I've worked for everything I have. I'm a self-made person. I haven't been taken advantage of, I've never taken advantage of anybody else. Everything I've earned, I earn myself. Nothing has been given to me. I'm not privileged. But... In Luke 22, we heard earlier about the dispute that the disciples had as Jesus was serving them about who is to be the greatest among them. This selfish, worldly ambition is only concerned with oneself. And you read the text, notice this exchange that Jesus has with them following that dispute. He said this in Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at your table or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. In this story, we see Jesus redirecting their worldly, secular, selfish ambition into a holy ambition to give to serve, to bless others. And it's with that that we read Philippians chapter 2, a verse that we're familiar with. And let it consume you and wash over you these days as we hear from the words of Paul. He says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on the cross. And though today we may stand in awe of Jesus doing this on our behalf, it is admittedly so remarkably hard to be moved into doing the same for others. And yet Jesus has called us to redirect our ambition to lift it beyond the boundaries and horizons of our own concern and to have ambition for his kingdom, for the cause and needs of Christ. And so to conclude, a holy ambition begins with first having a kingdom vision. Having kingdom vision, this is a vision that goes beyond the boundaries of one's own concern. It leads to a crystallization of discontent and this is an awareness of things not being made right, not right, 
that solidifies into a tangible response. And then it doesn't stay there. It leads into sacrificial action. It's the redirecting of ambition, privilege, and resources for the sake of others. And as we look at these stor two storylines, right, the path of worldly ambition or holy ambition, how would your life change if you were to reorient your entire life, your passions, your pursuits towards a holy ambition? How would your life change if you saw yourself on mission here in this city, here in this world? Not on a mission to meet your own needs or accomplish your own plans, but on a mission to seek and bring the kingdom of God to this world. To feel compelled by Christ's magnificent love to live not for yourself but for Him. And then, what if you are not alone in this mission? Imagine what our world would be like if the entire group of people would live wholeheartedly, fully sold out for the mission of God. What kind of world would that be? Now, at 21 years old, I was full of ambition. I had a whole lot of desire for my own life. I had a whole lot of desire for the kind of career I wanted. I had a whole lot of desire to accomplish many things. I had a whole lot of desire for, honestly, status and stuff and to have a certain lifestyle that I thought was right and good for me. At 21, I had ambition. But there was a moment in my life where God invaded my life story. He came into the picture. And I saw all that I had wanted for my life. All the plans, the desires, the things I wanted to accumulate. And I saw all of it disappear in an instant and God dropped in my heart. A purpose, a calling, a mission. And it was that day that I made an intentional decision to redirect my ambition towards a holy ambition to be after what God has called me to do. A mission, if I can define it for you, isn't defined by where you go, isn't defined by geography, isn't defined by where you're planted in, whether in the church or in the marketplace. It's not defined that way. But mission, in its simple essence, is obeying what God has called you to do, going where God has called you to go, and being who God has called you to be. In that moment, I made a decision that my life would be about a holy ambition. Now, things have not been easy. You know, um, ambition, you know, is, uh, you know, running, <laughs> running after a holy ambition does not equate to a simple, easy, or comfortable life. It does not. But, it makes for a fulfilling life, full of promise. It is a life that isn't simple, but I'd like to just offer this as a, a statement of hope to you. I've met God in more profound ways than I've ever done so in my life. Because the Christian life is so much more than just earning a good keep, being responsible, serving in church on occasion, and then going into eternity. The Christian life is about meeting of God. And God can be found not just in the mundane, the everyday, but He's found when people choose to move out of their comforts, embrace a kingdom vision, be discontented about the affairs of the world, how things are, and are moved into sacrificial mission and action. You want to meet with God? He is found in the broken places where there is need where it's concerned and it's called you to go and meet him there. Mission is this. It's entering into what God has been doing in the earth all along. It's stepping into his story. And so this is my pastoral passion for all of you. And that is this, that you would not live a good life. I think that's far too small and fleeting of a goal. My passion is that you would fulfill God's call upon your life that you will endeavor to follow Jesus with every fiber of your being and join him in his mission to be used by him to have a holy ambition. As a pastor, I want to commit to doing this, and I have already been doing so 
Some of you might be on the fence with this holy ambition thing. I would just like to say to you that I've been praying very dangerous prayers for you. I've been praying this for our community, that we wouldn't live and settle for what is comfortable and ordinary and mundane. But we would launch into the deep. We would step out of the boat and meet with God. In the midst of the storms, the waves of life, we would meet with God in His purpose and His mission for us to have a holy ambition. Amen. I invite you at home to uh, stand to your feet as we look to close the service. The worship team will come on stage and lead us uh, back into song. But before that, I want to just take a moment for us to respond to all that we have just heard. You know, I'm a big fan of Bible reading plans. I wonder how many of you are. I feel like as a pastor, I just have to be a big fan of Bible reading plans. Uh, in a couple of years, I chanced upon this Bible reading plan, and it was called The Shred. The Shred. Man, have you ever heard a Bible reading plan called The Shred? Uh, and The Shred uh, basically operated in this way, right? You know how people usually do a Bible in a year? The Shred uh, was about doing the Bible in one month. The Bible in 30 days. And so day one of the plan was Genesis 1 to 46, uh, to 42. And so uh, that was the shred, you know, and I was like, man, you know, like my congregation was probably doing like Bible in one year as their pastor to set a holy example. I needed to do the Bible in one month. And so I did day one of the shred, day two of the shred, and by day three, we hit Leviticus. We hit Leviticus and then I was like, oh my gosh, this is a lot. And then I gave up. <laughs> and uh, and I, I know many of you probably have similar experiences, probably not the shred, but you set out this uh, new year with resolutions, with goals, with things you want to accomplish, things you want to do. And then come end of January, we live in just the valley of like unfulfilled New Year's resolutions and like, all these things have been unfulfilled. And you then witness and see a gap between the person you want to be and the person you actually are. And probably some of you are feeling the same feeling with regards to all that I've talked about earlier. You're seeing a gap between the person you are now and the person you want to be. You're seeing scripture, you read that how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel of Christ. And you go, I want that to be reality for my life, but I'm not doing it. There is a gap. But what we need in this moment is not feelings of guilt, shame, but we need kingdom vision. We need godly vision. We need God to inspire vision in us. And I love that in Acts it talks about the outpouring of the Spirit. And the Spirit falls upon all flesh. Vision comes with the outpouring. Vision comes with the outpouring. When God gives us vision, He doesn't just give us good ideas and says, figure it out on yourself. He gives us vision and He gives us His Spirit. That power that comes from on high to actually allow us and empower us to do things beyond our own ability. Our confidence is not just in our own goodness. Our confidence is in God's grace extended to us. And so this is how we'll begin this brand new explorations into missional life. We'll talk about specific practices. We'll talk about how we are, can integrate these practices into our lives. But let us begin this exploration these few weeks with a moment but we ask for the Spirit. He comes not just to give us good feelings and sensations. He comes and He inspires fresh vision in our life. Just as the song we sang earlier, Replace the Lamb of My First Love. The Spirit comes, He tends to the flame upon our heart. He fuels it. He bursts in us a fresh passion and desire. He gives us godly vision such that we may lift our eyes beyond what immediately concerns us, such that we may be kept, caught up, captured and enamored by the story he is writing in our generation. And so with your hands put up before you, I invite everyone to do so. In this room, in the room there, in your homes, everyone, lift your hands before you. Everyone do so, please. And let's ask for the Holy Spirit to come. In your own way, say this, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. We invite you now, God, to pour out your Spirit upon our church. Pour out your Spirit upon our community, 
rid all selfish ambition, cause our eyes to lift beyond just what immediately concerns us, what affects us. Cause our eyes to lift beyond our own needs. Cause our eyes to see God, what you want to do in our world. Cause our hearts to long for this participation that you've invited us to. And cause our lives to be steered towards your purposes. Lord, we pray that in this moment, it won't just be a time that simply passes by. But Lord, I ask boldly in your name, let this content crystallize in the heart of your people this day. Let this be a turning point for many where they shift beyond just being concerned about themselves to being concerned about your kingdom. Lord, I pray boldly that missions won't just be a side thing we do in the church, but we will endeavor to throw our whole lives toward your mission, oh God. Come, Holy Spirit. Come in power. I ask this. In your name. Amen. Amen. Let's go back into worship together.